0: You're listening to The Verso Podcast. Welcome to The Verso Podcast. This episode features a conversation with writer and professor Ashley Dawson, recorded as we walked through the streets and waterfront parks of lower Manhattan. We discussed the process, arguments, and implications of his new book, Extreme Cities, a disturbing survey of the necessarily ecological history of global urbanization and industrialization, and the unstable futures they are producing. Now, three years after Hurricane Sandy devastated the east coast of the United States, this area of New York City, the finance capital of the world, bears little trace of the disruption. In late October of 2012, the hurricane caused immense damage to this and many other parts of New York. Intense flooding shut down the transportation infrastructure and caused prolonged power outages for huge sections of the city's population. Yet, unlike many working class and lower income neighborhoods in other boroughs, Lower Manhattan seemed to benefit the most, immediately and inordinately, from redevelopment taken on by the city a trend observed previously during the response to the destruction caused on 9-11. As we put it during our talk,
1: we're on a exactly, right?
0: And the conversation tours this urban geography and the book as we make our way through both. For several decades, Ashley Dawson has studied and written on an array of the processes present in colonialism, global urbanization, and industrialization, his career consistently combining scholarship and activism. He is currently a professor of English at the City University of New York and a longtime contributing member of the Social Text Collective. He has edited and curated collections on post-colonial global diaspora, debt and apartheid, post 11 Politics and Occupy Wall Street, and is the author of Extinction, A Radical History. Our conversation began as we walked through the Staten Island Ferry Terminal and out into the city.
1: I mean, this is a good place to start. Should I sort of start by telling you a little bit about why the yeah, yeah, ferry terminal I, is significant? absolutely. So I teach in the City University of New York system. I'm based at the Grad Center in Midtown and then also at the College of Staten Island. So my usual commute from Jackson Heights in Queens where I live is you know to come on multiple subways down here to the ferry terminal, then take the ferry to Staten Island. And then there's a bus that takes me from the ferry terminal there to College of Staten Island itself. And I was chair when Hurricane Sandy hit New York, and therefore it was important for me to be able to go to the college to get it back up and running. But I couldn't because you couldn't commute from right. Jackson Heights access. here. Yeah. yeah, the subways were shut down and you know all of Manhattan south of 14th Street was without power. So the dean managed to find a coworker of mine who had a car and who commuted down the BQE regularly to College of Staten Island, across the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. So for a few weeks after that, I was in a car rather than taking public transportation because it was so incapacitated. So I didn't see a, a lot of the damage to this area immediately, but I was commuting back in the afternoons after a few weeks after the subways got back up and running. So. Yeah, I saw some of the stuff that I'll take you to in its damaged state, but the important thing to know is that a lot of people in Staten Island were pretty grievously damaged, including many of our students' families who lost their homes, some of them lost loved ones, and this was not that long after 9-11, which really decimated many uh, people in Staten Island. So there was a lot of work to do to help people to get the college going again, mm-hmm. you know, like to get the electrical grid going. You know, on some level, I kind of saw what was happening quite viscerally in one of the most damaged communities. But on the other hand, just given the sprawling geography of New York City, I also wasn't able to see things. The difficulty of moving around the city became very apparent to me, you know, when public transportation was was hit. And also the ways in which the city was uneven in terms of its geographies of race and, and mm-hmm. class particularly were were pretty evident, you know, um, coming and seeing all the work being done to get Wall Street buildings back up and running and then hearing from students about how you know FEMA was not coming through from right. them and how they are struggling with all this red tape. You, one could see the disparities pretty pretty evidently. Right. So just in my sort of daily commute, a lot of the unevenness of the city was, was very evident.
0: Right. And examining unevenness, particularly geographical and socio-economic unevenness, is a backbone theme of extreme cities. Can you explain what an extreme city is and elaborate on how you came to use unevenness as an axis in your writing?
1: I was thinking about the ways in which cities are increasingly economically polarized as You know, anyone who has eyes to see and ears to hear Mm -hmm. has been, and particularly after Occupy made, you know, the inequalities between the 1% and the 99% so evident, and then got kicked off the small plot of land they managed to occupy down here by city authorities. So the issue of economic polarization of New York City was very much in my mind, and then in addition, of course, you know, I come from a background in post-colonial studies, so I'm thinking about planetary urbanization and right. the way in which kind of the build-out of cities has been happening, not just in wealthy kind of nodes of capitalist command and control like New York or, or London and Tokyo, but also in cities like Lagos and Mumbai and other places. So the inequalities and the extreme character of those cities was also on my mind. Thinking particularly about Mike Davis's wonderful book, Planet of Slums, and the way in which structural adjustment policies during the neoliberal era have pushed people off rural land and into cities and created these kind of sprawling slums. And there's been a lot of post-colonial fictional production um, about those kinds of struggles to survive in, in slums. So there was that issue of economic and social polarization, inequality. And then I've, I've also been thinking about cities as sites that are particularly affected by extreme, increasingly extreme weather patterns. Obviously, Hurricane Katrina showed both of those kinds of patterns. But you know, the sort of fragility of infrastructures the complicated infrastructures that keep cities going is something that people like Stephen Graham and other geographers have been writing about and thinking about. So all of this was was very evident to me before Hurricane Sandy, and then when Hurricane Sandy happened in New York, that all became very, very plain. Right now we're we're walking just outside the Staten Island Ferry Terminal to the South Ferry subway station of the, the One Train, and, um, this station was completely flooded, you know, and I remember coming out of the ferry tunnel, uh, the ferry terminal building and walking to this subway and just looking down the stairs and seeing it completely filled with water, wow. yeah. The vulnerability of what is really one of New York's greatest infrastructural achievements was very, very clear. And you can see that they've tried to deal with it with these huge big doors which should swing shut, yeah, in the event of another storm Um, but back when Hurricane Sandy was happening there were literally people sort of piling sandbags in front of these uh, stations trying to stop the the storm surge coming in. Look the MTA spent 600 million dollars trying to rebuild itself including this specific station to storm proof itself but if you're a New Yorker and you ride with any regularity you know that it's in terrible state and misfunctioning all the time and of course part of that is as a result of this ridiculous turf battle between the governor and the mayor and the the governor's failure to really support New York City's public infrastructure but all it takes is a bit of rain or not even that to make the subway not work so as much as they've tried to climate proof this section of the subway you know the subway is, is still filled with these electrical switches, hundreds of miles of them. And the thing about natural disasters is you can, you can never be sure what the next one is going to look like. You know, They're all different from one another. And as much as you try and storm-proof after a particular storm, the next storm is going to bring something totally different. There are going to be weaknesses or unforeseen weaknesses in the system. let's go down towards the battery. And so city-spanning infrastructures like the subway system or the sewage system, you know, there are 14 sewage plants in the city and they are all on the water level, kind of by necessity, because they function by flushing purified water from sewage out into water bodies, and they're all highly vulnerable. And those are just a couple of examples of this inherently
0: vulnerable infrastructure. The fragility of city infrastructure, as you just mentioned, brings to mind what you call the jargon of resilience, namely how city officials and developers both engage in lip service to calls for comprehensive and appropriate development and redevelopment public private partnerships yet the implementation of their plans usually belies that insufficient resources were allocated to the projects and their impacts on the entire city's population were not taken into account or were simply ignored well if if you
1: imagine that we can do a few temporary fixes for the time being, and a hundred years down the road, we'll be able to retreat to Park Slope or my neighborhood Jackson Heights or some of the other elements of the kind of elevated city, and everything will be okay. It'll be a smaller city, but it'll still function the same. It, it's completely ridiculous, right? right? Because right. this whole city, as folks like Saskia, Assassin have argued, functions through a core with affluent People and finance and real estate development linked to these constellation of outer boroughs, which have immigrant work classes who right, sort of largely of the serve
0: working of the city, yeah.
1: exactly. So the idea that you're still going to have some kind of a city if you can't transport people backwards and forwards, if you can't have a functioning sewage system that works across the whole city, really doesn't make any sense if you start thinking about it just a little bit. I think the MTA and the subway system is a good example of the way in which you need to think about these kind of precarious city-spanning infrastructures rather than just like isolated little pieces, right? And that tends to be the way that design thinking happens, right? I mean, like the Rebuild by Design initiative that I wrote about in the book. The way that it worked was to try and focus on a few spots in the city which could be exemplary projects and a lot of the work done in the rebuild by design competitors is is really forward thinking and really wonderful in, in lots of different ways but it is based on taking a fragment of the city and trying to make it as clever proof as possible rather than thinking about the city kind of holistically and there have been attempts to do that You know, there was a a report published shortly after Hurricane Sandy that tried to come up with a whole patchwork of different kinds of solutions to deal with rising tides. But the problem is often, you know, how these kinds of visionary proposals actually get funded. We're right now in Battery Park, right in front of the seawall. We're looking straight at Staten Island into the, into the harbor and towards the Verrazano Narrows. And one of the things that makes New York City so vulnerable to climate change is that it, it's in this kind of 90-degree intersection of Long Island and the coast, so that storms coming in off the Atlantic get kind of wedged into this funnel and come in through the Verrazano Narrows with this very strong surge, which pushes straight towards downtown Manhattan and Red Hook in in Brooklyn, some of the world's most valuable real estate (laughs) here in Wall Street ends up getting threatened. What does the city propose to do? Well, it's proposed to build a levee called the Big U, which is supposed to go all the way from basically 45th Street on the east side around the bottom of Manhattan back up again. Right, right. And so there are lots of questions that come with that. Why? Only downtown Manhattan being protected. What about areas north of 42nd Street? What about the danger to areas that get the wash-off from a storm surge that hits the barrier? Red Hook and Governor's Island are are right there, right? And so if a storm surge comes in, the chance, chance is strong that it will rebound and get sent back out into the harbor and may submerge other communities. And then there's the levee effect question. It was supposed to be high enough to resist another sandy, this so-called big U, you know, essentially a berm or a levee. It may, from what I've been reading, only be 10 feet high. What if, you know, sea level rise is happening and the next storm surge is higher than that? You end up building more buildings and making people feel complacent as if they're protected and everything is, is okay when in fact the next storm surge could overtop the big year and uh, you know, submerge a lot of real estate, a lot of people once again. So there's a real danger of uh, exacerbating problems rather than ameliorating right. them ultimately.
0: Right. This dovetails into the trend of what you term urban greenwashing. The, quote, effort to depict urban life under the reign of capital as sustainable to continue attracting speculative real estate development. Given this discrepancy between what is essentially PR language and actual engagement with the climate crisis and how courting speculative capital seemed to dominate those needs, what difficulties did you face as an academic detective when trying to gather information from public authorities?
1: Well, I have to say that writing the book and trying to solicit information from public authorities was quite an eye-opener. Yeah, I just found it almost impossible to get anyone to speak to me about these issues. Maybe it's because I'm a professor rather than, you know, a journalist who's connected to high-profile publications or something like that. I don't know. I think it may have to do with the fact that there's a strong disincentive to go on the record about any of this stuff. Um, because these these projects are often changing their form and often don't actually see daylight for many years. I mean, there is no big U in front of right. us, right? It's not here, even though the HUD set aside almost a billion dollars for these rebuild by design projects. So supposedly it's being built. As far as I know, ground has not yet been broken. But in articles published a year or so ago, some. People went on the record sort of saying, it's not going to be as high as it was originally proposed to be for economic reasons. And it's not going to have all of the public amenities that it was slated to have, right? Right. If you you go on the Rebuild by Design site and you you look at the Big U proposal, there's a very slick video that shows all these parks and places where people can do Tai Chi and other public activities all created by the, the big U. And it's not just that the designers have a social conscience, it's that groups like Lower East Side Ready pushed really hard for these public amenities as part of the consultation process. And you know, the uh, Rebuild by Design Commission, which the Rockefeller Foundation initially funded, really vaunted itself for being something that was far more socially inclusive than public design processes usually are but it turns out some of those elements may disappear (laughs) when the thing actually gets built and it might just be a big ugly wall as one architect said so we'll see what happens but yeah I don't know when the whole thing will eventually be built if it ever is. Part of the problem as I understand it is that it was to be funded by public seed money but then private donations were supposed to come in and build major portions of it. Private, public initiatives are very fashionable these days, Right. but it really begs the question whether it's in the interest of some private entity, some capitalist firm that's trying to make loads and loads of money to build massive works of engineering for the public benefit that have no real value yeah. to them as, as investments. I mean, if you look at what Holland's done with some of its massive engineering projects that have tried to deal with the threat of storm surges coming on off the North Sea, those have all been publicly funded. You know, there, there have been private engineering firms designing those things, but they've been publicly funded. So the U.S. hasn't solved that problem, I think. Let me just come back to a thought I had, based on your earlier point about uh, greenwashing. Um, One of the things that I was really interested in, going back to the idea of the extreme city and economic and social polarization, was the question of of housing and public housing in the city, right? Um, I mean, the the redevelopment of Lower Manhattan after 9-11, almost all of the funds, uh, there's a a great book, by Kevin Fox Gotham and Marion Greenberg called Crisis Cities that focuses on the rebuilding of New Orleans after Katrina and New York City after 9-11 and they really show how almost all the funding for the redevelopment of Lower Manhattan went to affluent areas like where we're walking right now downtown and Battery Park City as well and, and didn't go to working class, relatively poor areas like Chinatown or the uh, Lower East Side, for instance, which are predominantly Asian American and Latino in in their populations. As I thought about what was happening after Hurricane Mm -hmm. Sandy, but more sort of broadly to to the city under Mayor Bloomberg, who talked a good game about climate change and uh, resiliency and who commissioned some of the studies that I was talking about earlier, Was to to really think about what was happening in terms of development and real estate investment, right? Because what a lot of geographers have been saying for a long time, I mean, I'm thinking about Henri Lefebvre, for instance, you know, who wrote The Urban Revolution way back in the early 70s. What they've been arguing is that real estate speculation has become one of the kind of cutting edges of capital in developed countries, along with financialization and financial speculation, in fact the two go kind of hand in glove, you know, as manufacturing has been offshored to other countries, elites in the U.S. have been making their money almost exclusively off money mm-hmm. and off building houses. So. so What kind of building was really happening and was the city actually being transformed over this long period in a way that made it more sustainable, you know, despite all the rhetoric of greening the city and making it more resilient. And what I argue, perhaps not surprisingly, is that no, it wasn't (laughs) actually made more resilient. What essentially was happening was that in the era of bloomberg a whole series of former industrial portions of the city were identified as sites for development i mean of course williamsburg is the most famous one but long island city is another there are many of them right and in the book i talk about how a bunch of Bloomberg heavy hitters all went on a tugboat up and down the East River looking at the sort of, you know, watering mouths at all the opportunities for building
0: new luxury condos. So, accompanying the dominance of speculative investment over the future of cities is the sort of obscene reality that inhabitants of these affluent areas have the capital and resources to provide themselves with private infrastructure like power or to even literally retreat to other property in times of emergency.
1: So, I don't know what this is called, the building, but it's one state street. It's just opposite the ferry terminal. And I remember walking past this building on my way from the ferry terminal to the subway stop just outside the um, tax building up here, and these massive, generators were running all the time, extracting water out of the basement and powering the building. And it's one of a number of corporate buildings that had its own generators in place. The most famous one was Goldman Sachs. I don't know if you've seen the photograph where all of downtown is black and Goldman Sachs is this pillar of light because they had generators installed in the building before Hurricane Sandy and had their own power. So you know kind of glaring social inequalities are, are so evident because of that. The the work of pumping out the basement here just seemed to go on for weeks and weeks and weeks. We'd walk past and I'd I'd hear the generators running. So for me, again, it was such a strong sign of inequalities in the city and how some people had these massive privatized infrastructures that they could draw on to save themselves and people who didn't have access to the money to support that were just left not high and dry, but the opposite, you know, wet wet and desperate. And, and that kind of thing is endemic around the world. The diesel fuel generator is a staple of many cities in the global south because the electric grids are not functional. And so affluent people who can afford to buy diesel fuel and have generators can have electricity, no problem. But for the vast majority of people, yeah, power is something that people don't take for granted. And of course, with access to power comes access to running water and to sewage. And heat. Yeah, exactly, right. So without access to those things, the very basic elements of life are pretty contingent.
0: You mentioned Hurricane Katrina and Sandy and now several hurricanes have recently swept through the Gulf, making their most destructive landfall on the continental U.S. in Houston and Florida. In each of these scenarios, it has been clear that economic disparities sort of exacerbate the presence of dynamic weather. Puerto Rico, due to its specific geographical isolation and the socio-economic precarity of its people and government, sort of exemplifies how the destabilized unevenness you describe is specifically part of what makes extreme weather disastrous, right? Absolutely,
1: absolutely. I mean, what what I try and emphasize throughout the book is what my um, friend and uh, former colleague Neil Smith argued in a wonderful essay called There's No Such Thing as a Natural Disaster. You know, and, and in that essay, which is so important, he essentially says, there's no such thing as a natural disaster. I mean, obviously there are extreme weather events and carbon emissions are helping to create them, mm-hmm. but the human vulnerability that leads to what we call a natural disaster is socially created. Always, right. right? right. you know. Um, and Puerto Rico, along with, of course, New Orleans is a, and so many other places, is a clear example of that, right? Because the island is being, governed by what is essentially a Republican-appointed financial junta, very few of whom are actually from Puerto Rico, and have the power to privatize, to uh, public assets, to smash unions, to lower the minimum wage, and just to make people more vulnerable in a whole variety of different ways. And uh, actually, I just finished a piece on Puerto Rico's power authority, which is sort of in the one of the entities that's most in the sights of the sort of vulture capitalist hedge funds that control all of this debt. So there's a long history there, right? How did it work out in Puerto Rico? Well, the U.S. Um, after World War II gave all these tax breaks to corporations that located manufacturing on the island, and and so. Puerto Rico got all these highly polluting industries. And then in the mid-1990s, under the Clinton administration, all those tax breaks were terminated. And so industry fled the islands. People were increasingly poor. But some of the tax breaks for um, financial speculators were kept in place. So you know, these hedge funds accumulated more and more of the government bonds. And then when the recession happened in 2008, the whole thing bubble burst, right? And so you got this massive debt. Now that debt is being used to argue for the privatization of, it's called PERPA, the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, but not just privatization. What's worse is that the plan put forward by the privatizers, the, one of the chief of whom, who wrote some of the regulations for PROMESA, which is this financial mm-hmm. junta arrangement, He's head of the liquefied Natural Gas Association of America. And so the plan being put forward for the transformation of the electric utility in Puerto Rico is not just to privatize it, but to switch it from generating electricity by burning imported petroleum to generating electricity using imported liquid natural gas. So the country, by 2030, it's projected, is going to be spending a billion dollars a year importing this liquid natural gas. Just as it's hemorrhaging money right now to import oil, liquid natural gas is cheap now, but if the price goes up, you know, it's going to be hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, even more. And so it's not a sustainable economic footing. So the issue of, of debt and dependency is still going to be in place. Of course, it's not a sustainable environmental right. footing, right? So you know, the, the country could be a prime example of a switch to resilient, renewable energy. I mean, it's a tropical country, right? Damn it. You know, it, yeah, yeah. it gets lots of sun. All of Puerto Rico's power could come from solar energy and and wind power with no problem. It's just a, a matter of making that shift to renewables happen. But the people who are pushing for privatization are definitely not in favor of that. So it's going to take a lot of political pressure to make sure that what we see happening isn't another instance of disaster capitalism. You know, like what we saw in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And it's hard to keep one's mind on that right now because, I mean, it, the situation is just so ghastly and it becomes clearer and clearer day after day that it is like Katrina, except in this case, you know, it's not a city of people who've been abandoned, but an entire island of over three million people.
0: As you write, the material base of industrialization is nature. And you mentioned Mike Davis earlier, who points out that globalization has destroyed the ecological base that made its own development possible. The authorization of nature as the non-urban, the pastoral, progressed along with the other trends of industrialized, globalized capitalism. And everything you just described informs a crucial imperative you portray in the book. That the conception of urban space as separate from ecological space needs fundamental reevaluation.
1: I think New York is really important in fostering that urban-rural binary, right? Because Central Park is is this kind of jewel. We're so fortunate to have it, but it was created by these great landscape architects, Calvert Vaux and Frederick Law to mimic a country garden, to look like untouched, perfect nature. Mm. Of course, that's not at all what it was. It you know had reservoirs, and there were some areas that were more formal and looked more like kind of French or Italian gardens, and some areas like the Ramble that were cultivated to look more natural and untouched. But the point was that the whole thing was a product of real estate speculation by wealthy real estate owners living at the bottom of the park, and that in order to construct it, um, people had to be evacuated. So these processes of enclosure that were really central to capitalism at its inception and that, of course, remain really important around the globe today, were really part of creating this apparently undisturbed nature. Yeah, this this kind of jewel-like park in the center of one of the world's most apparently urban cities helps to reify these oppositions between rural and urban, because you can kind of see them. You know, you walk from these giant skyscrapers into this green space, right? right? It's like, oh, here's here's the countryside. If I go outside the city, I'll find more of this. You know, this is what I expect out there, which ignores the way that the countryside has been subsumed within industrial capitalism, you know, and, and is used to produce crops for cities. It's, it's a pernicious binary. I think it is being challenged by contemporary landscape architects in ways that are really interesting and important. That was one of the things that I found most interesting in my research is to read about the work of figures like Kate Orff who are trying to think about ways to live in a more harmonious way with the natural world in cities. So she's her, her firm the one that did the Living Breakwaters project off the coast of Staten Island. And in that project, they're using naturally seeded oyster reefs to try and grow as a breakwater to protect the vulnerable areas of the southeast uh, Staten Island coastline. So, you know, instead of putting up a seawall, which would have all the problems of, of a levee, but in the sea. They're trying to use this oyster texture, as Kedorf calls it, uh, as a form of, of natural barrier. And it has all sorts of other benefits, too. You know, oysters purify water by circulating huge amounts, each of them, every day and, and purifying it. Kadorf's idea is that living breakwaters is a kind of test example, but that it could be something that is done throughout the New York Harbor as the waters get cleaner. So yeah, it's it's an interesting project. It's only possible because of decades of struggle to clean up the Hudson by Clearwater and other organizations, you know, from PCBs, which GE released uh, further up the river, but it's still not totally clear if it will work. It's, it's still not clear if the oyster reefs will take and if the waters are clear and clean enough. And of course, there's the problem that originally K. proposal for oyster texture was part of this rising tides exhibition that MoMA organized, I think in 2009. And it was to be in the waters of uh, the Guanis Canal. And so since then, you know, the whole Guanis area has gentrified like mad, yeah. right? So again, the kind is of questions, really yeah. yeah, right, of, of the ways in which a really you know, kind of wonderful attempt to work in harmony with natural ecosystems to protect the city, um, you know, how does that work with trends towards gentrification and social and economic polarization that seem antithetical to those efforts at sustainability, but obviously one, one designer like Kate Orff can't solve all of the problems of the city, so it's, it's a valiant effort. To think about all these different systems and how they can work together, how we can have what she calls multi-species habitation, right. you know, yeah. in a way that's politically progressive and not based on sort of walling ourselves off from nature. Shall we go across this bridge? Yeah, sure. We're in an interesting site in many ways, right? This tunnel, which goes to Brooklyn, was totally flooded during Hurricane Sandy, so you know, from this bridge you could look down, and like the subway system, you could just see it completely filled with water, and it was seawater, and so of course it corrodes not just the electrical systems but the concrete. In fact, the tunnels leading into Penn Station for Amtrak and New Jersey Transit, basically the entire rail corridor (laughs) going uh, through the northeast from Boston to Washington, D.C., were shut down this summer because they still hadn't fixed the corroded concrete that Sandy brought. The work is, is very much ongoing, and there's so many other kind of points of craziness and vulnerability in Derek's infrastructure that one really has to, has to wonder. So here we are in Battery Park, going back to our earlier discussion. Yeah, these are very expensive ribbon walls of condos with tiny little parks next to them. And, you know, I mean, they're used by the public broadly and people are hungry for them. You know, they're important public amenities. It's just, you know, if we lived in a different kind of city, there could be so much more of this and it could be so much better and so much more accessible. And serve that that dual function of public space and buffer. Exactly. The funding to buy up the spaces that would be used as these kind of water parks, which would be public amenities, you know, on an everyday basis. And then when a a storm happens, they could serve as sinks for water. I mean, they're not nearly enough of them in the city to really, I mean, it was a kind of demonstration project, but it couldn't really do what it's supposed to do. So that's the tragedy of the fact that New York had all these waterfront sites and and didn't really use them um, the way it might have, I think. It's not too late, we can always just <laughs> occupy all these things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. The opposite of managed retreat is pell-mell flight by those who can afford it into their affluent lifeboats. Right now, the trend is for rich people to want to colonize the shorelines in places like Battery Park City or Miami Beach. but. As slow forms of threat, like sea level rise and the disasters that punctuate that increasing peril hit home more and more, the danger, I think, will be that affluent people will move away from threatened Mm -hmm. shorelines and leave vulnerable people with real estate that's worth nothing, trapped in that real estate. We need progressives to be making arguments about state implemented plan for managed retreat. Towards the end of Extreme Cities, I want to get people to engage with the idea of, of really transforming large scale structures and coming up with plans to do that, even if they seem somewhat pie in the sky today. You know, these huge civilizational crises, you know, the really significant portion of humanity lives in coastal cities. And if we look one to two generations down the line, that, that's not gonna keep working. And of course, you know, if, we, if we look like at places like Houston or Puerto Rico today, we see that in the present even, masses of people are threatened by these disasters which are, are punctuating and apparently you know, quotidian, sustainable reality. So, you know, even today it doesn't seem sustainable, but if we look a little bit further down the road, um, something needs to be done. There needs to be some plan for equitable transformation.
0: Well, a really interesting aspect of the book is how you deal with the dilemma of time and scale in the current crisis. Uh, That is, how the projects of industrialization and urbanization and the consequences they produce have accelerated beyond the reach of the everyday norms of urban life. Policymakers who may only serve a few years are implementing policy that has effects that will last much longer. Uh, investment capital is looking for short term returns while engaging in projects with long term effects. The consequences, temporally and geographically, exceed and thus seem external to the causes.
1: Yeah, we, we're just, we have a limited temporal horizon which is built into so many of our institutions. Um, I mean, I, of course, the most important one is is capital. And, uh, you know, the idea of getting returns on a quarterly basis or an annual basis or something and not being able to think more long-term just makes for incredibly short-sighted kind of lemming-like behavior or ostrich-like behavior put your head in the sand other elements are, are equally purblind, you know the 30-year mortgage which is such a central element of American racial capitalism you know and the kind of transfer of assets on a generational basis from people of color to middle-class white people in the post-1945 era. Yeah, it, it means that people think in, in 30-year segments rather than further down the line. And even that is, is an issue, right? The mayor of South Miami, whom I interviewed, talks about the problem of selling your, your house to somebody else who's gonna take a 30-year mortgage and having a clause saying that the uh, property is safe for 30 years the length of the mortgage and he's like well you know (laughs) there's just no way to know that in in Miami and in fact it's probably the opposite so what is that going to mean for this kind of fundamental element of wealth accumulation and trans intergenerational wealth transfer in the United States Uh, it's really gonna break down I mean I think in some ways that's where environmental humanities might be useful and important right because The whole role of um, writers and uh, artists more generally is to think kind of speculatively, uh, to think beyond those narrow narrow temporal constraints and to imagine futures, play out scenarios, uh, issue warnings about what the current trajectory, where it's going to take us and to imagine more utopian alternatives. It's a hard thing to do because there are so many signs of apocalyptic doom. The oceans are acidifying, the coral reefs are dying, let's go this way, you know, we're in the midst of a mass extinction crisis. And <laughs> it's not like we can just move north. Everything needs to be rethought, really, <laughs> on such a grand scale. Um, and there, We're only at the kind of initial stages of thinking about that just because we're so fucking clobbered all the time right now in the present, I think. We need to be doing both things, you know, being able to talk about these huge civilizational challenges that we face uh, in the medium term, you know, in the hope that we can (laughs) kind of keep going as a civilization. and coming up with some sort of source of hope and something to get people to organize around and to militate for, rather than just to say, all right, well, might as well stay at home and watch TV and drink beer.